What is it that we buy and we save and we spend and we waste and we serve and sometimes we kill? I'll give you a clue. It's a commodity without which we cannot exist. I'll give you another clue. It is something that helps define the people we are and the life that we live. Give up? I'm talking about time. Time. You ever found yourself in a situation where you needed to make a decision and you didn't know which way to go, so you decided you need to buy yourself some time? Or have you found yourself in a situation where you had an overwhelming number of things to do and you didn't think you were going to be able to meet a deadline, but you found some shortcuts that would save some time? Have you found that there have been times when there was some downtime and you really didn't have anything pressing to do and you found you were just wasting time. Sometimes you're waiting for something to happen and it never happens and never happens and never happens and everything's on hold so you just spend time killing time. And if you really get into trouble you might finish up serving time. Time. It's an appropriate thing to talk about at the end of the year because the year's sort of made up of time and now it's going into history so there's a lot of time being used up. And we're embarking on a new year which is made up in its entirety of time. So I suppose there's some questions about what we plan to do with it or the sort of things that could happen. <laughs> the funny thing about it is we're not sure what it is. This mysterious thing called time. St. Augustine, in his famous book, The Confessions, asked that question, what is time? And he added, if no one asks, I know what it is. If I wish to explain it to someone, I know not. In other words, sure, I know what time is. All right, explain it. Uh, I've been looking for some definitions of, of time. And my two favorites were time is what clocks measure. Isn't that helpful? <laughs> time is what clocks measure. Well, there's something else equally helpful. Time is what stops everything happening at once. <laughs> but none of these definitions get us any further along. Now, we're coming to the end of a year. Well, year is a measure of time. But what's a year? Well, year is the time that elapses, the time again, is the time that elapses between the vernal equinox, which is very, very helpful, particularly if we know what a vernal equinox is. <laughs> vernal equinox. We, we know 
what the longest day of the year is, and we love it, midsummer. We know what the shortest day of the year is, and we can't wait to get it over, midwinter. That's why we have the Christmas celebrations, to help us try and get over it. <laughs> but if we know what the longest day is, and that's the shortest night, and the shortest day is that's the longest night, I guess by the law of averages, there must be a time when the day is as long as the night. Are you with me? And that's a vernal equinox. And the vernal equinox, interestingly enough, happens once every 365 days, hence a year. Now, a vernal equinox has something to do, of course, with the movement of the earth around the sun. And what's absolutely fascinating is that that is so incredibly regular. In fact, if you pardon the expression, you can tell the time by it. <laughs> Which is precisely what we do. 365 days between vernal equinoxes. Well, actually, that's not quite right, as Julius Caesar figured out. And Julius Caesar figured out that it was 365.25 days between. That's awkward. Now, if they missed up the 0.25 of a day, it doesn't matter too much unless you're being paid by the hour. <laughs> but if it lasts for a few hundred years, you can really get messed up. Pope Gregory Thirteenth found that out. So he halted everything. Do you know what he found out? He found out that the time between a vernal equinox was not 365.25 days. It was 365.25 and then two more digits. I forget what they are. doesn't matter anyway. That's why we switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar. So why are you telling us all this? So that you'll know I know it. But there's another reason. All this thing called time that we use to define ourselves <laughs> is, funnily enough, directly related to the movement of the planets. And the movement of the planets seem to be so incredibly regular that you get the idea that there is order there. And so we talk about the created order. And it's not too big a leap to go from created order to creative intelligence. And it's not too big a leap to go from creative intelligence to creator. And I want to suggest to you that if we start with creator, creative intelligence, created order, and we see the order of it, so orderly that we can tell the time by it and realize that our lives are governed so much by time, guess what? We discover that we are intimately related to the whole created order and therefore to the creative intelligence and therefore to the creator. Now, what does that have to do with the way we live our lives? Well, it's all about time. But time sort of defines who I am. And time, which defines who I am, I've discovered, 
is full of times and seasons. And these times and seasons have a habit of coming and going. And they're full of happenings and they're full of events. And some of these happenings and some of these events are the direct result of the decisions that I made and the actions in which I involved myself. And some of them have absolutely nothing to do with my action. They have absolutely nothing to do with my decision. They are totally the result of what other people did. So sometimes I was the perpetrator and sometimes I was the victim. Sometimes I was the initiator and sometimes I was the reactor. All this is the bundle of life. That's what we've just lived this year that's through. This is what we're about to embark on, perhaps with very little or no thought at all. Now, the subject of life and its meaning and its relationship to time is something that was of interest to one of the Old Testament writers. He wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is found immediately after Psalms and Proverbs in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes, we are told in the prologue, that is the first two verses, was written by someone called the teacher. The name in the Hebrew is Koheleth. And, uh, well, that means sort of a wise person who talks a lot, or writes, or hence a teacher. But he further describes himself as a son of David and a king in Israel. Now, put those three things together. Son of David, well, we know who the sons of David were. And the kings of Israel, we know the kings of Israel were. And we know not all the sons of David were kings of Israel, so that narrows it down considerably. And it's clearly, the, the term Koheleth means a wise person. So it is a, a son of David who became king of Israel, who was known for his wisdom. Who's that? Solomon. And so a lot of people say this book, Ecclesiastes, was written by Solomon. Other people say, but if you take the trouble to read it, you'll discover that it was written by an arch-pessimist who goes on to say in the prologue, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now Solomon was a believer in the Lord. Does that sound like a believer? So some people say, no, it couldn't be Solomon who wrote it. Well, that leaves us with a bit of an impasse, but I think there's a way of putting the two together. And it is this. I believe it was written by Solomon. Koheleth was Solomon. I believe that for the sake of argument, in order to prove a point, he takes the position of an unbeliever. And logically, he follows where the thinking of an unbeliever will take him. And he shows the alternative. Now, notice, if you will, I've given you the prologue, 
Now go to the last two verses, the epilogue. <laughs> this is an easy way to read a book. <laughs> read the prologue, read the epilogue and fill in the rest yourself. That's not what I'm advocating here though. This is what he says. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion. Here's his conclusion. All right? Now he starts out, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. All right? Is that where he finishes up? I mean, if that's where you start, where do you go from there? Well, no, how he finishes up is this. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Wow. This guy's a believer. He's a believer. So what's going on here? What's going on here, I believe, is this. This man, with incredible wisdom, with great advantages, son of David, with enormous resources, king of Israel, has set out to do a thoroughgoing exploration of life itself from a purely secularist point of view in order to show what a secularist worldview will lead to and then he shows you the alternative. I think that's the key to Ecclesiastes and it's a fascinating book if you read it that way. So, with his enormous advantages as king of Israel, with his position, a prestigious position as the son of David, as somebody who when he was brought to the throne of David was asked by the Lord, what do you need? What do you want? And incredibly, he didn't ask for anything for himself. He asked, in order that I might rule your people as I ought, I need great wisdom. And God gave it to him. So is the great wisdom, position of prestige, illimitable resources. Now he sets about exploring life. But he is going to do it for the sake of argument from a secularist point of view. Now what do we mean by secularist? Well, there are some people who don't buy the argument that our life is inextricably bound up with the created order, for the created order suggests a creative intelligence, and a creative intelligence could lead reasonably to a being called a creator. They don't like that. They don't want that. They may say there is no such thing as a creator. The earth itself is eternal. It is self-sustaining. There is no one, no thing outside it. This is all there is. Or they may say, well, there may be a creator, but he lost interest or he lost control, and he is an irrelevant as far as this world today. That's a secularist. Our society is full of secularists. So if we want to have relationships with them, if we want to understand their worldview, if we understand what makes them tick, if we are interested in why they do what they do and why they live the way they live, then Ecclesiastes is going to be helpful. And he says, now let's look at things from 
a secularist point of view. Rule God out of the equation, first start. Okay? Now he says, for instance, let's try nature. So he explores nature. All right, verse 3 of chapter 1. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Under the sun. That's where it starts. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. All right? People come, people go, but the earth remains forever. The earth is eternal and it's under the sun. What's he talking about? Nature. Now, what does he observe about nature? Well, the sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's funny, actually. You probably don't, don't think the Bible is very funny. I think it's hilarious at times. Here's the picture. The sun rises, then it makes its majestic, orderly way until it sets. Then what does it do? <laughs> It rushes back. Oops, got to get back in time to rise again. And then it rises, makes its majestic way, and then it sets right on time and and hurries back, you see. I don't think he meant it, but that's the way it reads to my peculiar mind. Okay. (laughs) Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The earth doesn't have a beginning The earth won't have an end. It just goes on and on and on. And the sun goes round and round and round in his thinking. Then what does he say? He said, now look at the rivers. The rivers flow into the sea, but the sea never gets full. Why does the sea never get full? Because the water evaporates. And then what happens? goes into the clouds. Then what happens? The clouds come up to the mountains and they go higher into the cold air. And what happens? Then precipitation comes. And where does it fall? In the rivers. Guess what? And the rivers flow into the sea. And the sea never gets full. It doesn't matter for it evaporates. And it becomes clouds. And then what happens? This is a wonderful illustration for a preacher who doesn't have enough material to fill the time. (laughs) All right, fast forward. I do have enough material. What's he saying? Round and round and round and round and round it goes. Sun goes round and round. Water goes round and round. Then he gets into the wind. Wind goes round and round. Meaningless. Meaningless. Here's the situation. Many secularists recognize that the world in which we live is full of wonder. But they cannot, because of their secularist worldview, they cannot relate this wonder to a state of wondering about the Creator. They won't go there. So very often, they are secularists and naturalists as well. Now, you'll meet them all the time. They love to talk about Mother Nature. Jill and I went on a trip with two dear friends to Antarctica. Some of you know this, but pretend you haven't heard it before. 
We went to Antarctica in a little adventure cruise ship, 100 people on board, well, 100 guests on board. Give you some idea of the 100 people. They were very, very nice people, very educated people. You may wonder, well, how did you get there? We snuck in. And they, they, they were very, very into the whole trip. They had a wonderful time. One day, we were in the Falkland Islands on the way to Antarctica, and it was Sunday, and we found the most southerly cathedral in the world. It's on the Falkland Islands, so we thought we'd be good Church of England people and go to the cathedral. And we invited our hundred friends. If any of you want to come to church with us, you're all very welcome to come. So the four of us went. <laughs> that was the group. All right, but they just absolutely loved Antarctica. It is breathtaking. It is awe-inspiring. One day, I was standing next to a lady who I got to know, just a crowd of us there, and she was saying, Oh, Mother Nature. Oh, isn't this beautiful? Oh, look what Mother Nature has done. And so I, in my normal, gentle, humble, quiet way, (laughs) said to her, I think Father God should be given some credit too, don't you? And the most amazing thing happened. Her jaw dropped down. She took a step back and she said, Oh! Oh! And I thought that you were an attractive... Now, a friend of mine pointed out last night, she evidently needed her eyes testing. (laughs) I thought you were an attractive, intelligent man. She said, don't tell me. You're an evangelical. You're one of these evangelicals. Evangelicals gave us George W. Bush. (laughs) Evangelicals got us into Iraq. We're stuck in Afghanistan and it's all the fault of you. And this delightful lady went mildly berserk. And all I'd said was, in my gentle, humble, quiet way, I think Father God deserves some credit. Can't stand that, folks. They can't stand it. But the problem is this. They finish up going round and round, getting nowhere if nature is all there is. That doesn't explain anything. Now he goes further. He gets into history. Now what did they tell you in history? History repeats itself. If we don't learn from history, we're damned to repeat it, right? What happens? Generations come and generations go. Nothing new under the sun. You say, oh, come on, that's way off base. Look at all the stuff we've got. 
We've got computers, we've got the internet, we've got space travel, you, we've got electricity, we've got everything new. Yeah, that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is human living. And has anything really changed about human beings? Well, we've got some better laws than we had, but has the heart of human beings really changed? Not really. Same old problems are the same old problems. In fact, we're sort of stuck in the same old, same old. That's what happens, you see, to the secularist. doesn't matter if you look at nature, or if you look at history, or do what he did, look at philosophy, or engage in activity, spend his money, engage in pleasure, and after he's had a high old time, guess what? He had champagne in the evening and woke up and had real pain in the morning. Round and round and round you go. And he says, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Then he has his crack at education. And he says this, there's some, some smart people, highly educated, and there's some not so smart people who are not remotely educated. And he said, you know what I've noticed about them? They both finish up dead. Oh, this guy's got a massive case of pessimism, hasn't he? No. No. I want you to note something. Chapter 2, verse 24. A man could do nothing better than eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. He said, yes, he's a secularist. Hold it a minute. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. In other words, the one who is not interested in acknowledging that the life comes from the hand of God. The person who does not acknowledge God lacks the wisdom to understand God, the knowledge of life as it's intended to be, and the deep root of enjoyment that is not dependent on happenings. If that person doesn't experience any of these things, he finishes up, with a feeling of emptiness, and he asks, is that all there is? Is that all there is? He says, there's some a different way of looking at it. And the different way of looking at it is simply this. These things come from the hand of God. And we acknowledge that the happenings and the eventualities of life come from the hand of God. And we get around to saying, my times are in your hands. Why? Now look in chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Why do I say my times are in your hands? 
Why do I say that the things that happen in my life come from your hand, O Lord, and need to be lived in the light of who you are? Because there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Folks, that just about covers it. And what's he saying? He's saying... Good things are going to come, and bad things are going to come, and indifferent things are going to come. There are going to be some high days and some low days. There are going to be some bright days and some dark days. There are going to be some good days, and there are going to be some real stinkers of days. They come under the gracious oversight of our Lord and our Savior and our God. Now, if you are just living with a time for this and a time for that and a time for the other without any reference to a sovereign God, guess what? Your times are the result of fate or luck. That's secularism. So you got a choice. My times come from you. You say, but just a minute. If that is true, why has God laid such a heavy burden on man? That's what he asks. Why has God laid such a heavy burden on man? Because there's some down times, there's some hard times, there's some bad times, there are rotten things. Why has God laid this burden on us if you say that there is a sovereign Lord? And his answer to that is very simple. He says, God didn't lay this burden on you. God didn't lay this burden on you. He said, well, then if that is the case, where did it come from? Chapter 7, verse 29. This only have I found. God made mankind upright. But men have gone in search of many schemes. In other words, Mankind didn't like the way God wired us up to be dependent upon God. They wanted independence, and they got it. And the result is the chaos in which we live. And it's a heavy burden living life today because there's good days and bad days and indifferent days and boring days and exciting days. And there's a mix and there's a time for everything. But the amazing thing is this. Even though man has rebelled against God and has gone his own way and doesn't want to do it God's way, God says, well, you'll live with the consequences of that, and so life will be a mixed bag, and your times will be a mixed bag. But I promise you something. 
do it my way. And this is what he says. And I will make everything beautiful in its time. Wow. In other words, what it's saying is this. God is the God who can bring dancing out of mourning. He can bring blessing out of cursing. He can bring beauty out of ashes. And he does it all the time. But the key is this. We don't rule him out of the equation. That leads to meaninglessness. He's the meaning. He's the point. Factor him in. And you come to this conclusion. The chief duty of man is to fear God, honor him, revere him, worship him, love him, serve him, acknowledge him as you eat, as you drink, as you dance, as you mourn, as you laugh, as you cry. In all the times and all the seasons, God is God. And you know what you'll begin to discover? God will make everything beautiful. You say, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. All right. I was standing right here, speaking to a church full of people at a funeral. It was the funeral of a young woman police officer shot to death in the early hours of Christmas Eve. And the man who's been arrested and charged is her husband. A wounded warrior. Somebody who's come desperately damaged from Iraq. Where's the beauty in that? I'm hard put to see it. Except... I looked on that very pew right there under my nose as I was speaking. And sitting on that pew was the young female officer's mother. And the young female officer's brother. And the mother and the father of the husband who's been charged with homicide. And they were sitting together. And they were caring for each other. And I talked to the mother of the young police officer. And she said to me very quietly, this is no time for anger. This is no time for recrimination. This is the time for love and forgiveness. Beautiful. So be aware of what the secularists are thinking. Respect what they're saying. Gently point out to them where it's leading. And suggest to them 
there's a better idea. Remember your creator, preferably in the days of your youth. Because the day will come quicker than you think when you don't have the option to decide which way to go. And then it'll be too late. And there's a quick summary of Ecclesiastes for you on the topic of the meaning of life, particularly as it relates to time. And I think time is a pretty good topic to ponder right now, sisters and brothers, for the simple reason we're coming to the end of a year that was full of time and its history and it's gone and there's not a thing you can do about it. But was there something you can do about the new one? And I would suggest to you a very simple approach and it is this. Lord, this new year, I just want to make a statement. Psalm 31, I think it's verse 15. My times are in your hands. Amen and hallelujah.